Well, welcome again to First Free. Uh, my name is Matt. I serve as the pastor here. If I haven't met any of you, we're glad to worship with you. Would you pray with me before we begin? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, we just take a breath before you, acknowledging your goodness, acknowledging your presence, and asking God that you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds and our souls to hear what you have for us this morning. May we listen to all that you have to speak to us. And Lord, may I, uh, on this end, be as faithful as I can to discern and teach your word in a way that is true and good and helpful for your church. In Jesus' name, amen. We um, are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, as you probably have caught on to now, which is Jesus' master class on discipleship. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. And Matthew chapter 5 ends with Jesus inviting his followers to become people of complete love. It's kind of a scary verse, but it's complete love. It's that kind of love that has control over anger and lust. The kind of love that is honest and reconciling of relationships. The kind of love that wills the good of your enemies and prays for those who persecute you. The kind of love that comes from a person whose internal life and external life are integrated. This is holistic, integrated, complete, perfect love. The last line of Matthew chapter 5 reads, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be like Him. That's the goal. That's the, the telos, the direction of all of the Christian life. To become a person of complete love. We follow Jesus because we believe that He is the image of complete love. That when you're wondering, what does perfect love, what does complete love look like? It looks like Jesus. The way He spent time with His disciples. The way He spent time with God the Father. The way He interacted lovingly with the woman at the well. The way that He interacted with lepers. The way he treated, um, again, the woman at the well. The way he went to the cross on our behalf. The way that he prayed. The way that he turned over tables. The way that he spoke truth to those in religious power. The way that he forgave sins. The way that he liberated the demon-possessed. The way that he healed bodies and minds and souls. That's the way of Jesus. And when I hear to be perfect or to be complete in love, uh, (laughs) it's quite overwhelming, but my initial question might be, how how do I get there? How is that possible? So now, in chapter 6, Jesus addresses how we become people of love. He offers a means by which we grow in love. And what's so fascinating is that Jesus doesn't introduce some new and novel way 
of becoming holy. Instead, what he does is he reframes the three classic spiritual disciplines of the Jewish people. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. These were the three classic religious practices of the Jewish people in Jesus' time. And because of Jesus' profound words on these three subjects, the church decided, well, we have this season of Lent where we're introducing Christians what it means to follow Jesus till they get baptized on Easter Sunday. We should probably emphasize these three classic disciplines as well. Almsgiving, prayer, and Lent. So what I want to do today is simply walk through our text, since it's only four verses, verse by verse. We've had very long chunks of Scripture uh, the preceding Sundays, and so I haven't been able to be more detail-oriented, but I hope we can do that today. So if you have a Bible with you, um, I encourage you to open one up. A lot of people have them on their phone. That's fine. I would encourage you to bring a, a physical Bible the next few Sundays. Why? Because we're talking low-tech Lent, okay? If you pull it up on your phone, you know that just a swipe away is Facebook or Amazon or anything else that might be more interesting than what I'm saying in the moment. So I encourage a physical Bible if you can, but no shade if you're going to use your phone today. I get it. I didn't warn you in advance. So this first verse is sort of a, a thesis, not just for... Uh, the remaining three verses today, but kind of going all the way through verse 18 in chapter 6, which again covers those sections on prayer and fasting. So here it is, one. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Again, that relates to our text today on giving, but also the next two Sundays where I'll be talking about prayer. We'll divide that up into two Sundays. And then the fourth Sunday, which will be on fasting. Because these are the ways in the Jewish context that you practice your righteousness. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Righteousness, of course, is such a loaded term. Uh, And what I want you to do, at least for the next few weeks, when you hear that word righteousness, the Greek is tekaiasune. But what I want you to do when you hear it, I want you to think of right relationships. Okay, just for the purposes of the next few weeks, when you hear righteousness, think of right relationships. Having to do with right relationships is righteousness. Right relationships with others, your family, your spouse, your friends, your your coworkers, things like that. Also having to do with others though, with those who have less than you, those who are on the margins of society, those who are in this text called the needy, has to do with those kind of relationships, but it also has to do with your relationship with God, right relationship with God, and even right relationship with your own self. So Jesus addresses the way right relationships were meant to be practiced in relationships with the poor and the needy, that's almsgiving, in relationships to God, that's prayer, and in relationship to one's own self where the discipline of fasting was practiced. And Jesus is assuming in each of these practices that his disciples were doing them. And the Jewish people were in that day and age. Um, They were very faithful. That's why, if you notice the language in those verses, it says this. 
It's not if you give to the needy, but when you give to the needy. It's not if you pray, but when you pray. It isn't if you fast, but when you fast. Unlike myself, and maybe many others of us, uh, the Jewish people had little problem being disciplined, practicing their disciplines. Now, while I'm not the best at them, I am a big proponent of these classic spiritual disciplines. Um, I often prefer to call them spiritual practices only because discipline is, is more of a negative tone in our day and age. Uh, but I think they're a very good thing. I think that it's a shame that many of the evangelical churches that I've been a part of has, has abandoned them or sort of spoken mostly negatively about any type of discipline. Uh, because I think it's actually impossible to become a person of love in God without these three practices. I think that's why Jesus dives in. But on the other hand, according to Jesus, it's possible to do these practices in a way that does not produce holiness, in a way that produces the opposite. But hear me on this. Even though Jesus knows full well the danger in spiritual disciplines, that they can become empty practices that only produce pride and guilt, that they can enforce hierarchy and inflate our egos. But even being fully aware of these dangers, Jesus doesn't abandon them. Instead, Jesus reframes the way in which we practice these disciplines. Okay? The first discipline is almsgiving. Now, unless you read the King James Version, uh, this isn't a word we use much today. Alms. At least my generation doesn't use the word alms much. comes from the Greek word iliemosine, which can be translated compassion or pity, itself coming from the word elios, mercy. Now, some of you who have been at First Free, you might be starting to catch on to something here because there was this beautiful mercy and compassion ministry here for many, many years called Elieo, coming from that same word, mercy, compassion. So rather than thinking of almsgiving as simply financial giving, it's a much more uh, inclusive category of giving mercy and compassion, of working towards God's dream for this world, of justice, of peace, of righteousness. So Jesus says in verse 2, so when you give to the needy, when you give alms, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. Again, when you give to the needy or you can expand it to when you give compassion or when you support a charity or when you sponsor a child or when you work towards social justice, don't announce it with trumpets. I always, since becoming a Christian in high school, thought of that as a really funny concept of announcing something like that with trumpets. And um, <clears throat> I like to imagine Richard, who's in the back, he plays trumpet at our church, uh, his wife Mary plays trumpet as well. But I like to imagine Richard being asked by someone in our church, I don't know who, 
But someone, hey, Richard, texted him earlier in the week, hey, make sure you bring your, tr- your trumpet to church today because um, I don't want anyone to miss out on this gift I'm going to give. Okay? So you have Richard. I would now like to formally announce that I have given $10,000 to the refugee fund. Let the applause ensue. It's hard to imagine anyone actually doing that today. And uh, I don't think anyone was probably doing that back then either. Um, But it's a funny image. I think that there is a, a more subtle way that this would happen back then and why Jesus would talk about trumpets. Uh, This reference to trumpeting might refer to the receptacles set up for almsgiving in the temple courts. So some scholars believe that like the the thing you would throw your coins in to give alms was perhaps made out of ram's horn like the shofar, the thing that you announce still to today in synagogue that's kind of like uh, a trumpet. And so there you are at the temple, and you can imagine maybe um, the, the poor, older person slowly going up and lightly dropping it in. Clink. You barely hear it. But you show up to the temple with all the coins you got, and you exchanged them for whichever one's heavier. Is a dime heavier than a nickel? Or which, which one's heavier? You get the most you can get, and you figure out how to throw them right the right way. And you're sort of like, clink, 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 clink. That's when you give there, right? And then you walk smugly to your seat. Jesus is clearly getting at our motivation for giving. He's getting at our motivation. That's why in verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, but it doesn't end there. To be seen by them. There's a clarifier. It's not just that you can't be seen doing anything that's righteous. It's don't do it to be seen by others. It's not so much don't let others know you give, as it is, don't give so others can know. Right? It's, it's getting at the motivation. Um, which is why, again, in verse 2, which we just read, he says, don't do all this, what? To be honored by others. It's, again, the motivation that counts. About internal motivation. Which, by the way, no one other than you can really know. No one knows what that is except for you. You don't know why I might give to something. Uh, Even if maybe I accidentally drop my coin into the box and it's really loud that day. Um, Maybe my motivation was to be seen by others. Maybe it wasn't. Only I know. And if you practice compassion for that reason, for the reason of being honored by others, being seen by them, Jesus says, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. If you do a good thing for the wrong reason, it's not that Jesus is going to smite you and you'll go up in flames or that he'll abandon you and and leave you, leave relationship with you. It's just that you're going to miss out on the reward that he has for you. You get the reward of recognition and honor. And let's be honest, that feels pretty good. It's a real reward. Like posting something good you've done on social media and getting likes and comments and retweets and such, that feels good. Like it feels really good. It's a real reward. I've posted my piety on social media and got my reward. 
or giving a bunch of money and having your name as a primary sponsor or placed on a bench or publicly acknowledged in some way, that's a real reward. I'm not downplaying it. That feels very good. I've given to things, and when my name wasn't listed, I was like, oh, man. It feels good. Nonprofits and churches, by the way, know this very well, which is why they, they honor givers in ways that make them feel good because they need funds. And this is why Jesus says, be careful. Be careful. It's much too easy to become a hypocrite. It's really easy, especially in the area of religion and spirituality. We've all met, and probably even been, I have, the person at church who just seems to have all the right answers, do all the right things, give the right amount of money, but in such a way that when you encounter them, it somehow feels the opposite of sincere love. There's a disconnect somehow between their actions and their internal character. And while we may be fooled at first, eventually the lack of integrity is noticeable. And to be honest, it's very unattractive. Right? We all know this. Hypocrite uh, was the Greek word for a stage actor. In ancient times, actors wore masks and hid their true identity. So because of this, later, like in our day and age, it acquires the connotation of someone who acts one way in public, and yet they're really different in private, and so they distort who they are in front of others. And what's interesting, there's plenty of theaters all over Palestine in the time of Jesus. Really fine, lovely theaters where they do these plays. And in fact, there was a big theater built a few miles over from Nazareth during the time of Jesus' upbringing uh, in a town called Sephoris. And some people think because Jesus was a carpenter, which didn't mean most likely that he was uh, like working with wood, because there wasn't a whole bunch of wood back then. There was like a ton of stone everywhere. So a lot of people think, you know what? It's likely that Jesus and his father Joseph could have been working in construction on this theater being built in Sepphoris, which would be really cool. So Jesus uses this vivid image that people would have known about as a stage actor, a hypocrite, and brings it into the spiritual and ethical world enlarging the meaning of the word into what we understand it as today. So Jesus is the one who really introduces this idea of hypocrite as sort of a double-faced, hidden-faced person as well. Jesus knows how easy it is when it comes to religion to pretend. And he knows that this does damage to the soul and person of the one pretending, and to the witness of the church. It does damage to the witness of the church when people think we're pretending. So Jesus offers a new way to give and practice compassion. And that's in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. In order for almsgiving to bear good fruit, 
not just for those on the receiving end, but also for the giver, it can't be for the purpose of being seen by others. Almsgiving is meant to be a spiritual practice that forms you into a person of love, into a person who looks more like Jesus. But hypocrisy and the tyranny of the approval of others is always there, lurking to steal the transformative power of giving from us. So Jesus offers a corrective that has two parts, repetition and secrecy. And the repetition isn't necessarily there on the surface. He uses the illustration, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How is that possible? That's like me saying, don't think about the shoes that Pastor Matt is wearing right now. I see some of you looking. Don't think about the shoes that Pastor Matt is wearing right now. If you're not looking, you're probably thinking. The way you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing isn't by trying to think your way into it. It's not by giving one time and literally saying to yourself, okay, don't think about this. Don't remember this. What, what did my right hand do? Don't remember it. Forget it. Just try really hard. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't do it. No, it's by repetition. That's why it's a practice. There's no formation without repetition. Hear me out. Think about telling a 16-year-old in driver's ed, okay, start to accelerate, but don't think about what your right foot is doing. You're going to crash. Steer. No, don't think about what your hands are doing. Okay, stop. But again, do so without thinking of your foot. If you can think back to when you were learning to drive, your mind was all up in your appendages and what they're doing. And how do I do this? Of course a beginner is thinking about these things. Especially if you tell them not to. And that's okay. It's part of building muscle memory and becoming the kind of person who can drive. But as an adult, when you start your car and accelerate and stop and go again, are you actively thinking about what your foot is doing every time? Are you conscious of the exact angle of your foot on the gas pedal? Or the amount of time it lifts off that pedal stepping onto the brake pedal. Hopefully not. Um, It's actually unsafe if you are driving and thinking about these things in detail at the same time. Driving has to become second nature so that you're no longer thinking about what your foot is doing. That's when there's actually joy in driving. That's when driving feels light, not a heavy burden. Okay. Jesus is saying the same thing about almsgiving. Let it become a practice. Yeah, it's awkward at first. Yeah, you're probably thinking twice as much about your left hand and right hand and all that at first. But it's something that changes over time until you become the kind of person who just gives to the poor and needy with your life. Let it become a practice, right? Jesus is saying, let it become a practice. And then he says, let it be in secret in order to be free from the tyranny of approval of others and the possibility of hypocrisy. Give in such a way that the only other 
who knows is God. And this sort of thing, giving in secret, this is a powerful practice if you're new to almsgiving or if it's something that you've been doing for a very long time. In fact, that's the way to practice it so that you become the kind of person whose left hand doesn't know what their right hand is doing. So finally, Jesus says, then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. There's a few times in our four verses that rewards are mentioned, and when you continue on through verse 18, which we'll get to in the next few weeks, rewards keep getting mentioned. And if I'm honest, as an enlightened Western thinker, it's kind of strange and even embarrassing to me. Aren't we supposed to do good just for the good of doing good? Isn't that what Kant said is the highest ethical imperative? To do the good thing without needing any reward at all beyond the good of doing the thing? Needing a reward feels, well, childish. But Jesus, the master teacher that he is, is well aware of the human condition and the way we all still have that child in us. It doesn't go anywhere. You can hide it, you can numb it, but it's still there. Rather than being some intense idealist, Jesus meets us where we are as humans, because he's fully aware of the human condition as a human, and he says, here's how you get a reward. Now, he doesn't really clarify too much what the reward actually is. So we have to leave some mystery here of of what the rewards will be for these things. But he does say that it involves being seen. The reward involves being seen. Now, many of you have kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews or you know kids or you've seen kids on TV, okay? (laughs) No one gets out of this. You've probably heard three words repeated. Look at me. Mommy, Daddy, look at me. Daddy, watch me. My son is getting to the age where when I come home from work, he wants to show me something. Whether it's a new toy or a sort of craft project he did at school, or if we're at the playground and he wants to show me how he can start to do the monkey bars or something like that. What he wants is for me to put my phone away and attentively see him. All he wants is for his father to see him. To really, truly be present in the moment with him and to acknowledge his goodness. Wow, Shepherd, I can tell you worked really hard on that finger painting. Good job, buddy. You're hanging on the monkey bars. I see you. That's it. That's all he wants. He's not saying, Dad, look at me. I did it. Now where's the $20? (laughs) 
Maybe when he's a teenager, I don't know. But for him, the reward is the seeing, is the being seen by someone who loves him. Your father who sees what is done in secret. So I don't know what the entirety of the reward is, but the reward is at least the lovingly attentive presence of God beholding you. The reward is at least God looking upon you in love. It's being seen, like really, truly seen by the Creator and Sustainer and Redeemer of all things. So if the reward is more than that, hey, I'll take it. But I know it's not less than that. When it comes to giving, Jesus is saying, don't settle on simply receiving praise from others when you could have a personal encounter with the living God. One of the things that's so life-giving to me about these verses is that in contrast to many charities and churches, Jesus isn't just trying to get you to give more. He doesn't say when you give to the needy, give more. He doesn't say when you give to the needy, give more often. He actually doesn't even highlight the person in need in this verse. No, here, when he's talking about this discipline, he highlights you the giver. He wants you to know that giving and compassion aren't actually just for the other, but that by practicing them in the right way, they can actually transform you. He's saying, this isn't just some religious duty or way that you atone for sins. This is about opening to more of God in your life and becoming a holistic person of love. That is good news about giving. Where, though, do we start? What can we do this week? I think Jesus makes it pretty simple, actually. Do something good in secret. This is the practice Jesus offers us. Whether it's to literally give something to the needy or just some act of kindness throughout the week, this is the practice. This is what I'd encourage you to do. Do something good in secret. This week, can you buy lunch for a friend or for a person in need, perhaps a homeless person? This week, can you give something extra, maybe, to your church or a charity that you personally care about. Or this week, here's something you could do. You could secretly give cash to someone you know is in need. Ten bucks, a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, whatever you would feel, right? Whatever amount of money you would personally feel. Put it in an envelope. Don't put your name on it. Write on it what? You are loved and somehow get it to that person. If money is tight, there's certainly other creative things you can do to bless someone in need. 
But I encourage you, do something this week, however small it is. Let it be small. Just let it be something. And don't tell anyone. Don't post it on social media. Don't tell your spouse. Don't tell your small group as a praise report. Hey, you know what? This week I was able to... Okay. Don't tell anyone about it. That's the practice Jesus offers. Do it in secret. And after that, after you do it, imagine God the Father smiling down on you and reap your reward. You're not earning His love, okay? It's not what I'm saying. You're already in relationship with Him and you're already loved. Just like my son already has my love, but I still delight when he does something for me to see. He's not earning anything. He's just receiving. You're not earning God's love, but you can simply receive afresh the smiling face of God upon you. And when you do that this week, don't tell me about it. For me, for you, for us, Lord, may it be so. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are so good. In Jesus, you show us how even things that are meant to bless others can bless us with more of you. And so I pray this morning, God, that uh, any level of guilt or shame over the idea uh, of giving alms, of giving mercy and compassion, that you just wipe away any of that guilt right now and, and we would sense it as a gift, as an invitation to actually encounter you, uh, to interact with you on a deeper level. In Jesus' name, amen.